the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program as we close another week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever's on your heart. All you've got to do is pick up the phone and dial 210-340-9585. If you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, have a great weekend in church. I always love Fridays because that means we got opportunities to serve the Lord in these last days. Uh, tonight here at Calvary Chapel, I'm going to be teaching the the final part of Colossians chapter 2. I think it's uh, useful, a practical Bible study. Uh, And then for me, the fun part of Colossians is chapters 3 and 4. So that's coming up uh, in the weeks to come. So tonight, Colossians chapter 2, I think it's verse 16 through 23, which is the end of the chapter. Uh, Sunday, I'm going to be closing out the book of Acts. We're finally going to be done with the book of Acts. I think we've been in the book of Acts for about 14 months or just a little more than 14 months. And we close it out uh, this week. And then next Sunday, just a kind of a one-time only thing, the Lord, I believe, throughout the book of Acts with the with the emphasis on personal testimony, uh, the Lord has led me to share my testimony. So we're going to take the next Sunday and do that. Um, one other scheduling program, and then we'll get to questions. Um, we will not be having a live broadcast on Monday. On the holidays, uh, we take that day off. So on Monday, it will be a pre-recorded broadcast. And then, Lord willing, I'll be back here on Tuesday. Okay, let's get to some questions, and uh, I will wait your phone calls. This one is from Charles. Uh, I read that the rapture was a recent theory, 1900s in parentheses, and was never believed on uh, in the early church. My faith is shaken a little. Charles, your faith needs not be shaken. Uh, People that are not um, adherents to a a pre-tribulation rapture of the church, they're always looking for reasons uh, and say, well, no, it was just a a, a recent theory. It's it's not. That is absolutely untrue. Uh, I'll tell you how far the pre-tribulation rapture of the church goes. It goes all the way back to the Apostle Paul. We who are still alive and are left until the coming Lord will be caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air. We who are still alive, the Apostle Paul, who is sort of the New Testament eschatology uh, introducer, uh, he was pre-trib. He truly expected that he would see the Lord in his lifetime. And he served 
knowing that could happen, I believe it was one of the, the, the most powerful motivations for the depth of service. This was a man who's, who's changed the history of the world. And every day he expected that this could be a day where everything would change and Jesus would come. So he was clearly a pre-trib rapture doctrine person. He is the one in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 who introduced the idea of the rapture. He expanded on it dealing with an, uh, an incident of a false teacher in Thessalonica. Uh, in First Thessalonians chapter 4, and then uh, tangentially related is the second coming of the Lord in First Thessalonians chapter 5. So Charles, don't let people shake your faith. They make these unsubstantiated claims. I will say this, that there is a period in church history, a long period, where the idea of the rapture of the church sort of took a back seat. Now, one of the problems we have with that period of church history is there really wasn't much going on. There really wasn't much going on. And the reason is because they lost the sense of urgency. Jesus said that uh, a wicked, lazy servant says, my master delays his coming. Uh, We are to be ready day in and day out because the Lord is coming soon. So uh, your faith needs not be shaken. Let me... Um, suggest a, a, a paperback. It's a really, really good. It's available in hard uh, copy as well, but uh, paperback is probably a little cheaper for you. It's uh, called The Rapture Question by John Walvoord, W-A-L-V-O-O-R-D. And Charles, it is a wonderful book. Walvoord is one of the preeminent um, scholars, also a Greek scholar, uh, who uh, who deals with eschatology. So um, the rapture question by John A. Walvoord. Again, W-A-L-V-O-O-R-D. Thank you for the question, Charles. Look up. Jesus is coming soon. Here's a question from Jake. Jake says, my question is about dispensationalism. Uh, how can you explain... Um, why it is the right systematic theology. You know, Jake, one of the things, and and you may have heard me say this on this program, I'm not a systematic theology kind of guy. Um, Systematic theology sort of insists that you take their concept and you, you sort of put it as a filter over the Bible, and then you read your Bible through the filter of whoever systematic theology it is that you're reading. That is the worst way to develop uh, a, a good systematic theology. Uh, you read the Bible and let it tell you what your systematic theology ought to be. And you do that simply by learning what it says and, and really digging in, studying to show yourself approved, a workman rightly dividing the Word of God. You know, Jake, let me share a little bit of my experience with you. You know, I had never uh, opened a Bible. Uh, as a, I, I'm saved it just a, a couple of months short of my 40th birthday, I'd never opened a Bible. Now, obviously, I'd seen them. They were around, uh, but but my family wasn't a Christian family, and they didn't go to church. Uh, so so the idea of a Bible made no sense. We just I just never had any exposure to it. Uh, and when I got saved, I was so curious about so many things. I really had to dig in to find out whether or not the Bible was reliable. When I found out that I could depend on it, when it was revealed to me that this really truly was the Word of God, that's when I really began to dig in. I wanted answers to all of these questions. And um, the only way to make sense of what the Bible says, again, without a systematic theology laying over the Bible, the only way to make sense is to read it. What does it say? To whom is the author writing? And what did the author intend to say? That's hermeneutics 101. We've got to find out. And, and um, um, dispensationalism is simply a result of that. Now, what dispensation means is God is working at different times through different people in different ways. God himself doesn't change. His character, his nature doesn't change. But the way he deals with mankind changes. Now, let me get really, really basic. Um, there are people who believe this who will deny they're a dispensationalist, but, but the, the, at the basic foundation of dispensationalism is this one question. Do you believe that Israel and the church are two separate entities? If you do, by definition, you're a dispensationalist. God is dealing with Israel. He's made promises, covenant promises to Israel. 
But to the church, we have a new covenant. And, and that's just God working in different ways. Now, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a moderate dispensationalist. Uh, there are hyper-dispensationalists who really, really get goofy and do a lot of damage to dispensationalism. But um, it's simply God working different ways through different people at different times. Now, I'm going to say this as well, Jake. Jesus was a dispensationalist. When he walked into the synagogue and they gave him the scrolls and he read out of Isaiah chapter 61, he stopped right in the middle of the verse and then he said this. He said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your very hearing. And what he didn't do was go on to the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So he stopped it right there. God is working different ways, different times, through different people. And Jesus, of course, was saying uh, what he said in his Gospels. I didn't come to judge the world, but that through me the world might be saved. So he was a dispensationalist. Additionally, in the upper room, before he was crucified, he picked up the cup at the Passover meal, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. That's a new dispensation. The new covenant separates the old. In Colossians, Paul writes that the old covenant was canceled. The, the, the law that stood opposed to us was canceled. And Jesus said, okay, it's going to be canceled. So here's a new covenant altogether. That's what dispensationalism is. And it's the only way to make sense of the Bible. Now, Jake, if you've been listening to this program, I get questions all the time about things like Sabbath worship, or do we have to keep the Ten Commandments, those kind of questions. Uh, what about the promises of God, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, and a bunch of others that are well known? Uh, are those promises that we can claim? And the answer to those questions is no, because those are promises that weren't given to us the law, the commandments, say to the Israelites, that's a dispensation, that's the dispensation of law, and that changed when Jesus came and a new dispensation was born. So, Jake, uh, it's easy to dig in, um, um, look up a man named C.I. Schofield. Uh, he probably is the preeminent scholar that popularized uh, the idea of dispensationalism, but it makes understanding the Bible much more clear. You know, when you get covenant theologians, and that's the sort of the alternative of dispensationalism, when you get covenant theologians, um, they've got all these things, well, we don't know why God does this, we don't know why God does this, and, and there are just questions that we can't find answers to. But remember, God wants us to have the answers. And the reason is because their system of theology does not take into account to whom the prophet or to whom the author is speaking. All it is is God's working different ways through different people at different times. Great question, Jake, and it's, by the way, a really fun study. This'll, there'll be a lot of aha moments. Oh, that's why. Now I get it moments when you're really digging in to systematic theology, and, and you, you come across the idea, the inescapable conclusion that God is working through different dispensations in different ways. And by the way, we got another dispensation to come pretty soon, sort of be kicked off by the rapture. We're happy about that. At least I should say, we who are going to be raptured are happy about that. The people who are going to be left behind are not going to be happy about it at all. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Jacob says, if there are things God cannot do, does that mean his power has limits? Um, Jacob, um, God's power has no limit. Um, uh, he is um, infinitely powerful. Um, but the things that God cannot do are things that are governed by his character's nature. For instance, we know Paul says that God cannot lie. The literal Greek there is he's a not lying God. Um, why can't God lie? I mean, if he can do everything, why can't he lie? Well, he can't lie because that would contradict or violate his very nature. God cannot sin. Lying is a sin. So God cannot do that. God cannot uh, tempt us 
to do evil. Uh, temptation doesn't come from God. Temptation comes from the enemy, comes from our flesh, comes from the world around us. But God, James says, isn't the tempter. Why? Because God can't tempt us to do things that are evil. So anything that God can't do are those things that his character um, precludes him from being able to do. Now, Jacob, the questions uh, that people used to ask me when I was sharing Jesus so much as a, as a fairly new believer, they said, well, if God can do all things, can God make a rock that he can't lift? Well, those are silly questions. They're not honest questions. Don't worry about those kind of things. Um, the only things God cannot do, um, he can't coexist with sin. Why? Because God is light in him. There's no darkness at all. Um, God can't contradict his nature uh, by doing anything at all that's evil. So um, his power is not limited. It is unlimited, but uh, only governed by who he is and his holiness. Good question, Jacob. Austin says, my question is about Hebrews. Um, Being surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, does that mean people in heaven are watching us? Uh, Austin, no, it doesn't. And that's a a miss, a, a popular, but a misreading of what the text really says. The Greek word for witnesses in chapter 12 there is is martyrus, and we get our English word martyrs from it. And it follows, you have to remember that there are no chapter and verse divisions in the uh, inerrant manuscripts. Uh, They were were later creations of man to make things easier to find uh, and and keep in order. So chapter 11 is followed by chapter 12. Chapter 11 is the chapter of the witnesses. All of the, we call it the the, the Hebrews Hall of Fame of Faith, uh, and and they are the witnesses. Now, they're witnessing not our lives. What they are witnessing to is the faithfulness of God. They're witnessing to the power and the goodness of God. And so when he gets to chapter 12 and he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he says, we're then to throw off everything that hinders and sins so easily entangles. Now, the idea there is, again, they're not watching us. They're witnesses. It's like calling a witness to, a, to the stand in a courtroom. Um, and you say, do you swear to tell the whole truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? And then they say, I do. And, and then uh, they give a witness to the truth. Well, uh, the, the Hebrews chapter 11 saints those Hall of Fame of Faith of Saints, they're the ones who are witnessing to the power of God, the goodness of God, the justice of God, and um, the, the, the promise-keeping God that we all serve. And Paul then will go off in the rest of the book of Hebrews to sort of exhort them to action. Therefore, since we're surrounded by these witnesses, um, let's do what they did. Let's emulate their faith. Let's trust in the God that prove faithful in their lives. And it is a wonderful, wonderful Bible study if you go through chapter 11 and take a special note of those things that the people uh, are noted for. Wonderful, wonderful study, Austin. So people in heaven aren't watching over us. You know, it's a very kind of a a romantic um, emotion to think that, oh, my loved ones have gone before me. They're watching from heaven and seeing that the Lord is using me or they're watching out for us. That is not true. They're not concerned about the things on earth. Um, you know, in heaven, there'll be no more tears, no more pain, no more anguish. If if the people that have been in heaven looked at the condition of the world here and saw some of the things that we are going through or getting involved with, it would be great, great sadness. So, no, people in heaven aren't watching out for us. They're not watching over us. And they're certainly not observers to the things going on on earth. They're kind of busy looking into the face of Jesus, shining like the sun in all of its brilliance. I love that Revelation chapter 1 description of Jesus. By the way, I always use that, Austin, uh, when I'm doing a funeral of a believer. Uh, I want people to know in that audience that the one that we are all mourning, the one who's gone, uh, I want 
them to know exactly what their loved one is experiencing at that moment. And it's a, a, a great source of comfort. Wonderful question. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question from Carson. He says, if Jesus is God, and Carson, we know he is, so if Jesus is God, why didn't he know the time of his second coming? Well, Carson, he knows now, but he didn't know then. And here's why he didn't know then, because as a human, remember, he was 100% God, but he was also 100% man. And his ministry, according to Philippians chapter 2, his ministry here on earth, every bit of it, was governed by his humanity. He, he, he didn't pull out his God card. He didn't do miracles for himself. Uh, he didn't tell the future. In fact, Jesus tells his disciples in the upper room that I, I only do what I um, uh, see my father do. I only say what I hear my father say. So there was absolutely no independence at all none whatsoever uh, from his father. He was 100% dependent on his father for everything that he did. And that's not hyperbole. When Jesus said, I, I only say what I hear my father say, that was the way he lived his life, depending only on his father. And that he didn't know the time of his second coming was simply because that was hidden from the human Jesus. It was hidden from him. Again, he knows now and I believe, Carson, with all my heart, that he's getting ready to get up now and return for his church. I think the trumpet is about to blow and soon will be with the Lord. But uh, while on earth, uh, he walked just like you and I walk, dependent completely on the Father. Um, we are completely dependent on the Holy Spirit who testifies about Jesus. And uh, he knows now when he's coming. And like I said, I believe... That's pretty soon. Allison says, Pastor Ron, do our prayers for someone to get saved increase the odds of them getting saved? God knows who will be saved, so that doesn't make sense to me. You know, Allison, one of the things that I nobody has a specific answer to is how God, or even why God, uses prayers. You're right. God is sovereign. God knows the end from the beginning. Now, he doesn't cause the end from the beginning. If somebody you're praying for doesn't get saved, it's not because God didn't want them to get saved or kept them from getting saved. It's because they refused to repent and believe. So so God doesn't cause these things. Um, and God knows those who are his. That's, that's uh, uh, Paul writing to the churches in Galatia. Um, he writes that in Romans chapter 8. Uh, he writes that in First Peter chapter 1. He writes that um, um, throughout Scripture, uh, God knows those who are his. Now, why then does God ask us to pray? It's because he wants us to get involved. He wants us to be involved. In my Bible study last night, Allison, we had... Excuse me. In my Bible study last night, uh, in the prophecy of Amos, um, um, God had him praying, uh, interceding for the people upon whom judgment was going to come. Now, judgment was decreed. They couldn't escape it, but God still had Amos interceding. Why would he do that if he knew judgment was going to come? Because he wants humans to partner sharing his heart for those who are hurting, those who are broken, those who are lost. So, does it increase the odds? I don't even know how to answer that question, but here's what I do know. When God puts a prayer in your heart, he does that because he wants to answer it. Allison, my wife prayed for me, Paula, for 13 years. And she didn't quit. She, she, she wanted to quit a bunch of times, but she didn't quit. Uh, did her prayers get me to heaven? My grandmother, who was a staunch believer in Jesus, uh, she prayed for me daily. Did that increase my chances? Somehow I think it did. But here's the real neat thing is both my grandmother and Paula they get to share in the rewards that I'm going to receive in heaven. They get rewards of their own. The same as if you were to lead somebody to Christ. When, when they go out and they do what God's called them to do, you'll get to share in those rewards. 
So, yeah, we need, we're to pray. We're to pray without ceasing. We should always have those people before us. Now, we've also got to be sharing the gospel with them. It's not enough just to pray. God says, if you're going to pray for them, let me use you to minister to them. But um, for, for reasons that we can't understand, God's ways are not our ways. Uh, prayer actually changes things. We see that with Moses. We see that with other Bible characters. Prayer changes things. And we ought to be praying for the people in our lives who are unsaved without ceasing always, Allison. So I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you very much for the question. We're getting ready to come up on the end of our first half of the program. Um, Let me see if I can do a really quick one. No, I can't do it now. So I'm telling you, I don't have time. So there's the music. Okay. I have some questions. I just have some quick ones. Hey, we'd love to have your questions and comments. The uh, truth is you're more interesting than I am. 340-9585. That's Erico 210. Or toll free 877-630-KSLR. I'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half actually the last half hour of our programs this week i'm pastor ron arbaugh from calvary chapel in san antonio texas here is a question from nacho um, Pastor Ron, are, who are the angels who are in hell now? Referenced in Second Peter chapter two verse four, are they the sons of God? Referenced in Genesis chapter six, verses two and three. Read Second Peter chapter two verse four, and then we'll talk about them. It says, "For God did not spare even the angels who sinned; He threw them into hell in gloomy pits of darkness." where they're being held until the day of judgment. Now, Nacho, here's another verse I'm going to read to you. This is out of Jude. Jude is the half-brother of our Lord. In verse 6 of his only chapter, it says, In the angels who did not keep their proper domain, another translation says, who did not keep their first estate, but left their own abode, he is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, those two verses answer your question, Nacho. Yes, those are the angels who fell, and those are the angels in Genesis chapter 6 as well. The the, the sons of God that you've got in quotes, uh, that, that's never used scripturally except in reference to angelic beings. So they're fallen angels, and the, the Genesis chapter 6 fallen angels are the ones that are, are probably better described in Jude uh, verse 6. Um, they're, 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 I call them incorrigible angels. That doesn't even begin to describe uh, their power and their wickedness, their evil. Uh, these are uncontrollable angels, and that's why they had to be held in in dungeons in 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 the, in the abyss. Um, and we know from the book of Revelation that they are going to be released during the Great Tribulation. They are going to be released, and they're going to cause all kinds of problems all over the earth. For now, thank Jesus, they're being held in these dungeons, and they are being held captive. But they are um, the ones who were the sons of God. Um, they were the ones who came into the daughters of men, and they were the result of, of their I call it a ministry, an evil ministry, was that the only solution to preserve the human line so that Jesus could come, um, everybody in the world was wiped out because of the impact, the influence of these angels. So that's it, Nacho. And the answer is yes, that's who they were. Here is a question from Anonymous. How can I know if demonic spirits are leading or my flesh? Anonymous, I'm going to try to make this really easy. If demonic spirits are involved, uh, it's because your flesh has given them an opening. 
Um, the demonic spirits always want you to do bad things, but again, it's because our flesh gives them an opening. As a believer, I'm assuming you are, if as a believer, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world, we need to understand that those demonic spirits have no power over us. When we open the door, I'll give you an example. When Paul's writing to the Corinthians, he talks about sexual immorality. And this is an especially heinous sin because he says all other sins a man commits are committed outside his body. But when we sin sexually, we sin against our own body, which is also the temple of the Holy Spirit. So what happens when we sin sexually is that we give the enemy a deeper inroad. We, we, we open a door for demonic spirits to come in and do their work. But it's because we have given them the opportunity. Sexual immorality, um, mind-altering drugs, uh, drunkenness, which alters our mental state, all of those things give Satan an opportunity to come in and do his worst. And typically we help him out. So uh, I think the place to begin is always in the flesh. We know what we're doing that's wrong. If we're honest, all we can say is, God, I have no excuses I did it. I knew it was wrong when I did it. When we do that, the enemy's going to have this huge opening, and the only deliverance comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. But we've got to put away the sin in order for that to happen. So good question, Anonymous, but uh, I find it's really helpful if we always begin suspicious of our flesh. We're usually the ones who are responsible. Uh, another anonymous question, what does it mean to be celibate for Jesus' sake? Um, and then, then he or she says, I may be asexual. Um, to be celibate means just to do without sex. Uh, it's a gift that God will give if, in fact, we are single men and women. Um, we want to please the Lord. When Paul writes, find out what pleases the Lord, we know that, that, that being sexually pure pleases God. And so if you're not married... Um, then didn't ask God for the gift of celibacy. Now, when you do that, people say, I don't want the gift of celibacy. Well, you do while you're single. God will be really good at, at giving you a sexual appetite again once you're, say, or once you're, you're, you're married. But we want to be celibate because we want to please the Lord. So that's what it means when I say I'm going to be celibate for Jesus' sake. I don't want to do anything that's going to break his heart. Anonymous, it's so important that we tie in our behavior. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. So when we are disobedient, our flesh is shouting out, I don't love you, Jesus. And we have to be that honest. It's brutal, but we got to be that honest. Uh, if you are asexual, now all that means for the audience out there is, is, is not being attracted to anybody. Just there are people that have a... Uh, a, a, a very low, even a non-existent sex drive. That's okay. The Apostle Paul had this gift. Now, we know that Paul was at one time married because he was a member of the Sanhedrin, and one of the requirements to be a part of the Sanhedrin, the 70 ruling elders of Israel, was that you had to be married. Uh, and and um, we assume that Paul lost his family upon his conversion. They didn't want any part of Christianity. And so Paul would pray, I, I, I pray that you would be like I am in this regard. He says, if I'm celibate, then I can spend all of my time and all of my energy and all of my strength on serving the Lord. I won't have divided um, drives. My, my, my drive is only to serve the Lord and to please him. So if, in fact, you are asexual, you just don't have any interest, it's not as uncommon as you think it is, um, but... I always tell people, be open to what God wants to do. He may bring a man or woman into your life. And if that's the case, and, uh, and this man or woman is a believer, believe me, God is going to want your relationship to be physical, sexual. And when you do that, um, um, believe me, you don't want to miss out on that gift if God gives it to you. So if you're asexual, not interested, then you just spend all of your energy on the Lord. And that pleases him very much. One's not better than the other. Paul actually intimates that being single and celibate is better for the very reason that he can spend all of his time and focus and energy on serving the Lord. But then he says, you know, God loves marriage 
We're to seek a wife. It's not good for us to be alone. So um, I love it because we really can't lose. So that's what it means to be celibate for Jesus' sake. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Toll free, 877-630-KSLR. Damon says, why are there so many different denominations if we all have the same Bible and the same Holy Spirit? Um, Damon, the, the Bible is perfect. The problem is our understanding of the Bible is imperfect. And we, all of us, to some degree, some to a huge degree, approach the Bible with our own biases. And we want to understand. I, I think having a lot of denominations and different understandings of things is good. It's sort of like God shuffles the deck and, and, and brings Christians to the place where they can learn and where they can grow. Um, um, we are a non-denominational church here at Calvary Chapel, um, but we, we have a very high regard for the Bible. And um, even all Calvary chapels don't agree on all things. Um, the Bible is perfect in understanding. The Bible is perfect theologically, doctrinally. But remember, we are imperfect. And we, what does Paul say? We see in part. We, we like looking through a glass dimly mirrors in the ancient world weren't very good. And that's our level of understanding. And the Holy Spirit brings us some alignment. So here's the thing. If we study to show ourselves approved, work men or work women, rightly dividing the word of God, then we're going to get some answers. And Damon, here's what I always tell people. When the Lord has revealed something to you, when you're sure of something that's true, that will never change. Now, if, if somebody can sit down, open a Bible, and prove what you believe isn't true, well, then we need to be flexible. But if biblically you're, you're, the things you believe are demonstrably true, not just, well, I think it says this. No, it says this. And this is what I know to be true. If, in fact, you take that approach, then the Spirit will lead you, Jesus said, into all truth. And hold on. It doesn't matter what other people say. It doesn't matter what other people think. I, I describe myself, Damon, at times as, as being stubborn in the, in, in the godly way. Once I, I believe something is true. Now, I've been saved for, it'll be um, 33 years. In, actually, 33 years next week. Um, when, when I uh, got saved, the things that were true then are still true now. I'm not looking for new truths. I'm looking to expand my understanding of what is true. And the things that have been true, I've never had to throw any of those things away. God simply adds to those things that are true. And he wants us to stubbornly hold on to that which is true, that which is pure. And the way we do that is with conviction. We've got to understand if it was true then, it's true now. God makes things so simple for Christians if we just understand the nature, Damon, of his word and of his promises. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Ronnie says, I got a son named Ronnie and his birthday's coming up March 1st, the day after leap year, February. What is the difference between religion and having a relationship with God? Ronnie, I have um, the Bible study I'm doing tonight. If you want to tune in at calvaryessay.com at 7 o'clock, the Bible study I'm doing tonight is going to talk a little bit about religion. You can also listen to the Bible study that I did last night uh, in almost chapters 6 and 7 um, because God's whole point was religious stuff doesn't matter. Uh, he doesn't care about religious stuff. Religion, here's, the, here's the, the simplest definition. Religion is man's attempt to reach up to God and be acceptable. A relationship begins with God reaching down to the pits to redeem sinful man. Religion, we try to justify ourselves by the things that we do. By the way, when we do that, we justify ourselves and judge others at the same time. If somebody, uh, if, if I think everybody ought to meet on Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, then I'm going to look down on and judge people who don't agree with me. If I think we shouldn't eat meat or, or can't smoke or we can't drink or we can't, then I'm going to look down on people who do. 
Um, Jesus didn't care about any of those things. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 1, and uh, the same thing is true in Amos uh, chapters 5 and 6, God says, I hate. In fact, in, in, in Amos, he uses the words abhor and detest. I hate your religious practices. Who asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? And what we've got to understand is that we can do religious things thinking that we're okay with God because we're going through the motions. But that's the very reason that he judged Israel, the, the northern tribes first with Assyria and the southern tribes next with the Babylonians. They were doing all the religious things. They were still making sacrifices. They were still saying the right things. But their hearts were far from God. And relationship demands that our hearts are right with God. Remember, the Holy Spirit lives in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And because he's light, we got to walk in the light, and the Holy Spirit lets us know anytime that we're heading toward darkness. That's what relationship does. If you had somebody in your family, Ronnie, that you really loved, um, uh, and they were, they were, their life was headed for a shipwreck, uh, because you loved them, you'd tell them, don't do that. Why? Because you have a relationship. Well, that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does. And it's through him, the person of the Holy Spirit, that we maintain our relationship with the Lord. That's one of the reasons that Paul says we're not to quench the Spirit, because when we quench the Spirit, though we still have a relationship, that relationship is cold, and our hearts get hard. So we need to always be open to the Spirit, walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Uh, Paul, writing to the Ephesians, he says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be ye continually being filled continually, in the Greek tense, with the Holy Spirit. That's the value of a relationship. The value of a relationship, Ronnie, is that I can talk to God at any time during the day or night. All day, all night, I have access to Him. Why? Because we have a relationship. Religion simply means I go do something, and then I say, well, I did this, so it's okay. If, if I'm told to go to confession, I can go to confession, confess my sins. The priest can tell me that I'm absolved of the sins. He can give me some penance things to do. Um, but the reality is I haven't really cleansed my heart at all, so my sins are still guilty before God. In a relationship, the Apostle John says it's not possible for Christians, real Christians, to keep on sinning willfully. So that's the difference. It's the difference between heaven and hell. Uh, religion is man trying to make God proud of us. Okay, God, you ought to be satisfied with that. And by the way, we who are born-again Christians, we take the same approach. Well, I'll pray a little more, I'll read a little more, or I'll give a little bit more, or I'll serve a little more at church. And God, that'll make you happy. No, God's already happy with us. We're accepted in the Beloved. But what God wants us to do, Ronnie, is keep our heart right before Him. That's why Paul writes that we're to examine ourselves daily, to see whether or not we're in the faith. If we're walking in the flesh, we're not in the faith. If we're walking in the Spirit, well, that comes through repentance, that comes through keeping short accounts with the Lord, and and uh, the relationship with Jesus Christ is the most important thing that's happened to any of us in our lives. So I hope that answers your question, Ronnie. It's a good one. Here's an anonymous question. Uh, how can I deal with the fact of a family member who died without Jesus. Anonymous, these are always hard ones. I've got um, family members, of course, who've gone uh, on to be judged. I'm sure they're not in heaven. Uh, my mother, I'm not sure. I loved her with all of my heart. I'm not sure she's in heaven. I, I have an unsaved son. So these are tender questions. And here's how we deal with the fact that they might not be in heaven, or in some cases we know they're not in heaven. We deal with it by understanding God is just. God gave them a chance. God loved them more than I could possibly love them. My mom died before I was saved. So I never got a chance to tell her about Jesus. She never got a chance to see the change that Jesus has made in my life. But here's what I know for sure, because I know God's character. 
He made it really hard for my mom not to get to heaven. He reached out to her over and over and over again. He, I, I know that because he does that with every unbeliever. God is unwilling, Peter says, that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. So what we have to do is just rest in his judgment, in his justice, in his goodness, his fairness. And if we have enough faith to understand that God loved them more than we did, it's not God's fault if they died and went to hell, then I promise you that by the power of the Holy Spirit, your focus will be turned from their being in torment. Your focus will be turned on the goodness of God. Very important because these are, are things, you know, when I first got saved, uh, Anonymous, it was so difficult for me because I wanted everybody, I didn't want anybody to go to hell. And I told everybody to the point where uh, they didn't want to hear from me anymore. And I had to get comfortable with the fact that God is the one who's going to chase him. Conversion comes from the power of the Holy Spirit, not from the power of Ron. And what we've got to do is simply understand that God did the right thing. And as painful as it is to think about somebody we really love being in hell, as painful as that is, a day will come when we will fall on our face and say, Jesus, your judgments are just and true. He'll wipe away every tear. He'll wipe away the memories of those things. And then I think what God would have us do, the most important reaction, Anonymous, is God would say, okay, the pain that you feel over your loved one who's not with me, let's put that pain to work. You go tell other people about that pain and tell them that they don't have to fall trap, fall into that trap, that they don't have to to, to spend forever separated from God and just give them the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. You do your part, God will do his part. There are just some people who won't be saved. You know, Anonymous, one of the hardest things, you know, there's that, always that story in the book of Acts where Paul says to the Philippian jailer, uh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your whole family will be saved. We want to believe that we can name and claim our family in into heaven. We can't do that. God has given mankind this wonderful gift of choice, the wonderful gift of free will. Now, he knows the choice we're going to make, but he doesn't cause the choice that we're going to make. And if we remember that God loves the people we love more than we could ever possibly love them, the result will be an understanding by the power of your Holy Spirit, a, a, a peace that passes human understanding, that God did everything he could to get him to heaven, and if they chose not to, that's on them, not on you. And then we pray like crazy because that's what God wants us to do. Okay, i got less than four minutes now, so let's see what Oliver says. Three minutes just came up. First John says, Christians cannot continue to sin. Why don't pastors teach this? Um, Oliver, I'm going to be starting in First John uh, two weeks from uh, this Sunday. Uh, and I'm going to be saying that a whole bunch. So I don't know what you mean when you say, why don't pastors teach this? Anybody who's taught the book of First John, John repeats it over and over and over. Paul always says, God has to tell me something 27 times before I get it. Well, the repetition matters. And John says it over and over and over. Uh, and uh, what he's saying is not that we, we can't sin. It doesn't mean that we can be perfect. Because he also says in First John that if anybody says they're without sin, they're a liar and the truth isn't in them. What he's talking about is willful lifestyles of sin. We can't willfully continue to sin and claim to be a Christian. That's a false declaration. And um, I'm going to teach that. I, I, I talk about it all the time here in our Bible studies at Calvary Chapel. Um, what it does not mean is that Christians won't sin. What it does not mean is that if we do, we lose our salvation. Um, the Apostle Paul even said, what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing, a wretched man that I am. Um, he struggled with his flesh. You and I, Oliver, we struggle with our flesh. 
But what he's saying in there, literally in the Greek, is that we cannot continue to sin willfully or continue to rebel against God while claiming to be a Christian. That's a false declaration. And it is as clear as can be, um, writing to the Corinthians and writing to the Galatians, Paul lists lifestyles and says people who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he's not kidding about that. Jesus says if we hold on to unforgiveness, if we don't forgive others as we ourselves have been forgiven by God, that the kingdom of God is not for us either. So what we've got to do is do the best we can in the power of the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh, and then we don't have to worry about all of that. But it is a little bit unfair, Oliver, to say pastors don't teach that because I know for sure that we pastors teach that a lot. People don't like to hear that, but we teach it. People have ears, they don't use them to hear. Reminder that on Monday we'll be doing a pre-recorded show. It's President's Day. I'll be back on Tuesday at 4 o'clock on AM 630 Word. That is, if you pray for us, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Have a wonderful weekend in church. Honor the Lord with all of your heart. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.